You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. So as I kind of said, um, Nehemiah is about a man named Nehemiah. It's written by Nehemiah. Um, who is this Jewish man during the Jewish exile. So Jerusalem had been this really strong kingdom for centuries, and then they are cast into exile, and the people kind of realize that this is because of their unfaithfulness in observing God's law and really worshiping Yahweh as God. And so they've been in exile for years at this point, but Nehemiah, at the beginning of Nehemiah, goes to the king of Persia, a man named Artaxerxes, and request permission to go to Jerusalem, this holy capital of the Jewish people, which lays in ruins, and Nehemiah requests that they would be able to, or that at least he would be able to, lead up the rebuilding project of the city. And the reason is for the the people of God to have a place uh, to live, to be together, to observe God's law, but they also have rebuilt the temple, and they want to worship God as he has uh, decreed in his law, and they want to bless the nations, we are told. They want to be a place where the nations can experience the love and blessing of Yahweh. And so as Nehemiah goes about this task, we see opposition, both internal and external, to the rebuilding of Jerusalem, right? We see that the people internal are exploiting one another, they're oppressing one another, and so Nehemiah begs them and kind of uh, implores them to repent of this wickedness and turn back to God. And then on the outside of Jerusalem's walls, we see the nations plotting against Jerusalem out of fear that the people of Israel will become too strong and therefore oppress them. But we see them kind of plot to kill Nehemiah over and over again, specifically a man named Tobiah, which we'll talk about in this chapter. Um, And so Nehemiah is the account of all this, and we see that In the end, or really in the middle of the narrative, Jerusalem is rebuilt. The city gets rebuilt, and the people, as a result, they worship. They throw this festival with a feast, and all the nations are among them, and they're all celebrating what God has done, and we see the blessing of the surrounding nations start to happen as the people say, man, there must be something to the God of Israel because this impossible task has now been completed. That happens around the middle of Nehemiah. So we see a festival, and then we see the people of Jerusalem get together and start to repent. They take the sins of their fathers, and they recount the sinfulness of all the generations of the people of Israel, and they repent because, uh, because they know that they still, even though the city is rebuilt, they are still in exile. They are still enslaved by Persia. And so in their repentance, they plea for God to do something, and they make this covenant. They covenant, not just a promise, not just a way of life. They covenant with God to keep all of his laws, specifically generosity, um, specifically that they wouldn't marry their children into families that worship other gods, and specifically that they would um, observe the Sabbath. So those are what they specifically covenant to do, but they covenant in general just to observe all of God's law. So Nehemiah is, as a reminder, this real historical account It's also the word of God, therefore it's meant to teach us something about ourselves and about God's people, the church, and about God himself. And we could give you um, an apologetic or defense of of why Nehemiah really happened, like we could give you archaeological evidence or historical record that Nehemiah really existed and this project really happened, but I don't think we really need to look further than just reading Nehemiah 13. Here's what I mean. Um, Nehemiah 13 is not the type of ending somebody who's making up a story would write. 
right? It's, it's largely an account of the failures of the people of Israel to uphold their covenant. And Nehemiah kind of grasping at this revival that he had tasted earlier in Nehemiah and seeing it fail. I don't think um, if you were making up the story of Nehemiah, you would probably end the book in this way. Did you ever see the movie, not the show, although the show I think is good, uh, the, the movie Friday Night Lights? Um, Spoilers coming, but it's about a real Texas high school football team that against all odds, they they overcome poverty and division, and they have this amazing football season, and they get to the state championship, which is the ultimate goal of a Texas high school football player. They have an amazing game against the best team in the state, and they are less than a touchdown away, and they have an amazing drive towards the end zone, and they're about to score. For those of you all who don't follow football at all, the end zone is where you get points. Um, we're in Texas. I don't have to really say that. But, um, but the ball goes down right before the end zone. The ref calls the game over, and they lose. It's one of the best endings of any movie ever because it's, it's not what you expect. They lost. And so Nehemiah is writing, and after all that Nehemiah has done as a leader and the people have accomplished, it just ends. Right? They, they rebuilt the city. They were blessing other nations. They were feasting and worshiping, we saw last week. They, they recommitted to walk in God's law. They covenanted with one another, and they covenanted with God to follow his law. The temple was going to be observed again and taken care of again, and they would worship God in the midst of his dwelling place, the temple, again. They covenanted with one another and with God to be a holy nation, set apart a people for God's possession to bless the nations and now here's chapter 13. I'm not going to read all of it, but I'm going to, I'm going to uh, kind of glaze through and get through some of the big picture items of what's going on. This is Nehemiah 13. Let's start in verse 4. It says this, Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah. Remember, Tobiah is this enemy of Nehemiah, wants Nehemiah dead, wants the project to fail who was related to Nehemiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, Nehemiah writes, I was not in Jerusalem for the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon. I went to the king, and after some time I asked to leave of the king and come to Jerusalem, and then I discovered the evil that this priest had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. I was very angry. I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chamber and brought back there the vessels of the house of God and the grain offering and the frankincense. So Nehemiah is away on business. He's traveling. Remember, he's still bound to the king as a cupbearer. And Tobiah... The man a few chapters ago who wanted to kill Nehemiah, right when Nehemiah leaves, the priest says, hey, we're not using this room. I mean, yes, it's, it's where we're storing all of, all of the gifts to God, all of the things that will be burnt in honor of God, the frankincense, the, the aromas that will be burnt to God. It's, it's storing what we will give to the priests and the gatekeepers and the Levites for their payment. Let's clean all this out and let's let Tobiah live here. That's literally what's happening. This, this temple, which 
a few chapters ago, they, they were recommitting to, to, to watch over for the sake of God's holiness. They're now cleaning out the storerooms, which are storing gifts to Yahweh, to God, and they're giving it to the enemy of God's people to live in. Like a couple doors down from where God lives is this enemy. And so Nehemiah gets back and he's like, are you kidding me? Who are we cleaning? Whose furniture is this? Tobias furniture? We, we just covenanted to keep the temple holy and set apart. Verse 10, keep going. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work, they fled to their fields. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? Why is nobody there? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. So what he's saying there is they weren't giving. The people who were hired to watch over the temple and manage it have gone back to their fields because they're like, we're not getting paid here. Let's go back and farm because we can get paid and eat if we go farm. So they, again, they had just made a covenant to be generous, and they're not giving. So much so that everybody who worked at the temple was like, we got to go, go back to the fields. We can't, we can't afford to do this job that Nehemiah asked us to do and that the people appointed us to do because nobody is giving. Verse 15, in those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them onto donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? Did not our God bring disaster on all of us and on this city because of profaning this day? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Again, this isn't, it's, it's tempting to think Nehemiah is being legalistic. But, but he's really not. He, he's saying we... At creation, God established the Sabbath for the people. If God said that he rested on the seventh day, we should rest on the seventh day to be a blessing to all people, to give them a day of rest. And then back in Nehemiah 6, 7, 8, 9, when Nehemiah calls out this practice, it's because the nobles had said, well, yeah, we won't work on the Sabbath, but we'll, we'll buy and sell and let other people work for us on the Sabbath. And Nehemiah says, you're oppressing the poor. You're oppressing the nations by making them work on this day. A day that's supposed to point them to our God as a God of rest. You're saying, yeah, he's a God of rest for us, but not for you. He says it's wicked. And finally, um, in verse 23, things get a little out of hand. Uh, in those days, also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod Ammon and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashad, and they could not speak the language of Judah, which is Aramaic, but only the language of the other people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled their hair, and I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or not take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. First, I don't necessarily condone Nehemiah's reaction here. Um, he's clearly angry. I, I'm, I don't have an opinion on whether this is a just expression of his anger or not. I'm tempted to think it is just because 
everything that's going on up to this point is enraging for Nehemiah. But here, here's why I don't think it's unjust on a, on a specific level. I said this a few weeks ago, but I feel like it's worth bringing back up. This isn't a racial thing. It's not an ethnic thing about marrying the Jewish people or the Jewish children to other nationalities. It's a religious thing, and it's a holiness thing. Um, The Ammonites and the Moabites, they worship another god. And often these gods are cruel gods that demand things like child sacrifice and things like that. And further, in God's law, there's a way for people from Ammon and Moab to become Jewish. So there's a way, it's not just an ethnic line. It's, it, there's a way for y'all to become Jewish and assimilate to being the people of God. And this is what's going on. The Israelites had covenanted with one another to devote themselves to Jewish marriages for the sake of their children learning about Yahweh and worshiping Yahweh and becoming this nation that they had thought they would be, which is a blessing to the nations. And so Nehemiah is saying, you're you're sending our children into the homes of other nations to worship false gods. Moreover, um, they can't speak our language. If they can't speak our language, they can't read our covenant. They can't read the laws about God. They don't read the prayers to God in the Psalms. And if you can't, if you can't read our things and learn our things and sing about God, then you can't know God. You can't follow God. It's very much a holiness issue. So again, these are the accounts of the failures of the people, and they happen to line up exactly with the specific covenants that they make a few chapters earlier to follow, the extra kind of covenantal promises that the people make. We're going to be generous. We're going to observe the Sabbath. We're going to, be, we're going to give our children to other Jewish families for the sake of preserving the worship of Yahweh. They've broken all three. They've broken all three. So as we're wrapping up Nehemiah, um, Yes, Jerusalem was rebuilt, but Jerusalem being rebuilt did, for a time, lead to the hearts of the Jewish people being rebuilt. Jerusalem's wall being restored was symbolic of the people of Israel being restored to God. Just like they were recommitting themselves to God's city and to care for it and to live in it, they were recommitting themselves to God. They were worshiping him, celebrating him, committing to holiness, committing to following his law, committing to fighting oppression, to fighting injustice, to blessing the nations at the table of their leader, Nehemiah. This was happening just a few chapters ago. And if I were writing a fake story, if I were writing a fake story, I would have written this at the end. And the people of Jerusalem obeyed the Lord and were blessed all their days. And they lived happily ever after. And then they won the state championship. But that's not what happened. Nehemiah 13 doesn't end that way because that's just not what happened. Instead, the city is rebuilt. They fail to care for the temple. They fail to be generous. They fail to rest. They fail to be a blessing of the nations. They fail to teach their children the ways of God. So we leave with a picture of Jerusalem not experiencing blessing but spiritual decline. Almost immediately. I think um, I had Victoria read those four passages. I think Nehemiah is discouraged. It's hard to read tone here, right? Just like you can't read the tone of a text message. 
If it just says K, maybe it was enthusiastic. <laughs> but I have a hard time that thinking Nehemiah isn't discouraged. Um, he's getting angry, we're told. He's literally fighting people who are breaking oaths and, and holding their hair and saying, recommit the oath. In a few spots throughout the whole book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah will shoot up this little prayer that's an appeal to God. He'll say something like, remember me favorably, O God, for the work I'm doing in Jerusalem. Um, he does that in chapter 5. Um, he does it again in chapter 6 when he says similarly but a little different, remember them, O God, for their wickedness, talking about Tobiah and the others who want him dead. Um, it happens two or three times before chapter 13, but in chapter 13 he does this four times. He does this four times, and again, I don't want to read tone into this, but I think he's discouraged, and his discouragement is coming out in these appeals. Verse 14, he says, Remember me, O my God, concerning this. Do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. 22b, remember this also in my favor, O God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. 29, remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. And 31b, the book ends where he just says, Remember me, O my God, for good. Please remember me. In chapter, uh, well, before that, I think these are the appeals to God of a discouraged man, one who has tasted real revival, one who has tasted a real commitment to being the people of God, to bless the world. He's tasted it. And then in chapter 13, he sees not continued holiness and blessing, but a return to sin and a return to death. In chapter 9 of Nehemiah, the people recount their history, right? Their history is full of these commitments to God and these moments like that that happens in Nehemiah when they recommit themselves to the Lord. Uh, their history is full of it. And, and when the people do recommit to God, it's, their history is also full of God's salvation, his grace, his forgiveness. And their history is also full of their returns to sin, like this cycle of Conviction, repentance, grace, forgiveness, and then a return to that which caused them death in the first place is all over the history of the people of Israel. And we see it happen again in Nehemiah 13. Nehemiah, we see in 13, is doing some of the work of a man concerned with his legacy. He's trying to get the revival to stick. He's willing to fight for the revival to stick, but it's just not going to stick. It, it's, sin is too tempting. It's too tantalizing for the people of Jerusalem. So in the end, I think the book ends with, remember me, oh my God, for good, as Nehemiah's final plea. At the very least, God, look what I tried to do and remember me for it. I think it's a sad ending, for sure. After Nehemiah, there is no other history recorded in the Old Testament. God's word uh, is silent historically on what happens between then and now. We know we have historical record of things that happen like a revolt in the Jewish temple, but, but God's word does not speak to the history of God's people until 500 years later when Christ is born. So here's my final question that we'll work through this morning. What are we supposed to learn from Nehemiah? Not, not the man, but his whole narrative. What are we supposed to learn from this book well, I think two things. First, we're supposed to learn that Nehemiah, and therefore we, as counted with him among those who are trying to follow God, we need something more. 
Nehemiah needs something more at the end of the book. And two, I think we learn about who we are, the church. So, so first, we need something more, right? Sin marked people in the in, marked the people at the beginning of Nehemiah's narrative, and sin marks the people at the end of Nehemiah's narrative. But we can't miss the good that happened in the middle of the narrative. God's presence was felt in Jerusalem. Revival occurred. National confession occurred. Worship of Yahweh was reinstated. The sacrificial system to pay for sin was reestablished. Like, all of this great stuff happened, and they tasted it and experienced it. Yet, in the end, we are left mourning more, and I think Nehemiah ends wanting more. Nehemiah 13, to me, feels a lot like like the end of Good Friday or the, the Holy Saturday in between the death of Jesus and the resurrection. I mean, think about the disciples in that, in that time. They had, they had followed Jesus, this, this man who was God. They had seen and tasted his mighty works. They had heard his teaching. They had sat at his feet. They had seen him heal and raise from the dead. Some of them even saw him transfigured into the image of God on the mountain. They got wrapped up in this existing story of the king. The son of God is here himself on earth. He's come to save his people and liberate us from slavery and oppression. And then he's killed. He's hung on a cross. He's thrown in a tomb. And so on Saturday, after his death, we have reason to believe that the disciples are around saying, gosh, remember my good, O oh God. Remember that I followed your servant. He's dead, but I was a follower for a time. Now we hide. Now we scatter. But remember my faithfulness. Remember my good. The disciples need something more. And two, what do we learn about ourselves? Well, we've said this throughout, but the building of Jerusalem is meant to be a metaphor for the building of the church. Right? It's supposed to point us to the building of the church. Here, The apologetic for that of many, uh, one is uh, right in Revelation at the very end. Remember, John is being showed this image of the church, and an angel says, "Let me show you the bride of Christ, the church." And what John sees is Jerusalem descending. So we're meant to associate the building of Jerusalem with the building of the church. So historically, we've seen seasons for the church, I think, that mirror this narrative of Nehemiah in the 13 chapters. We've seen in the church historic, and maybe even in our church, seasons of revival, seasons of renewal, seasons of spiritual life, where people in mass are committing to follow God and trusting him, placing their life and faith in Christ in a way that saves them and liberates them. We worship and feast as a result. And we've seen seasons of decline. Seasons of hidden sin, seasons of waning numbers and discouragement. And a question I'll attempt to answer, although I'm, I'm not quite qualified to, <laughs> is where are we as the church? Where are we in the narrative cycle of Nehemiah? And some of y'all, myself included, might be discouraged because it feels like the church is in this season of spiritual decline. It might feel like the church is in this place of Nehemiah 13 where sin is abounding and we are left wanting more. And that might be true and it might feel right, but I think our place in this narrative or cycle might be more optimistic. You've heard stories of abuse being exposed in the church. You've seen reports of oppression and abuse of power, these sins that are coming out from the darkness into the light in our walls, in the city, in the church. 
I think that's the kind of thing that happens to the church right before revival. In Nehemiah, when the sins and abuse and oppression are being exposed, it's right before the people recommit. It's right before revival in Jerusalem. I think we're seeing sin be exposed within the city, and I think we're seeing, we're seeing sin be cast out of the city by the work of the Holy Spirit. This happened in Jerusalem before the wall was complete. Sin was being exposed and killed, so I don't think it's time to be giving up on the church. And I know I'm preaching to the choir because all of y'all are in a church right now. I think it's time to root in and worship together and start marveling at what the Lord might do and is doing through us. Worshiping for exposing sins in our midst and killing them. We can do this by loving our neighbors, by caring for the sick, the poor, the marginalized, the needy, the orphan, the widow. We can kill sin, cry out against abuse, and say, Not in your bride, Lord. Not here in Jerusalem. Bring these sins to light. And really, regardless of where we are in the tides of church history and the cycle of sin, revival, and decline, one thing is certain. Christ is coming for his bride. He's coming to stop this cycle. So again, what, what do we learn from Nehemiah? Two things. First, Nehemiah is left wanting more. Well, well, Christ, Jesus is the better ending for Nehemiah, and it's the true ending of the book of Nehemiah, that the Messiah that they long for at the end of the book comes and lives and dies for these sins. He dies for the sins of the people of Israel. He dies for the sins of Nehemiah because of the work of Christ. God does remember the good work of his servant, but he looks to the good work of his son, Christ, not Nehemiah's good work, and counts that to us, his people. The Father says, I've looked at the good work. I've remembered the good work of Jesus Christ, and I've remembered it on your behalf. His work is now counted to you if you believe in him. And second, what are we to do? Well, well, Jesus defines his church, and he's the end of our story as well. He rose from the grave, so the disciples had their answer one day later. He rose from the grave over our sin and death. He sits on a throne, all authority given to him, and he will return to end this cycle, the cycle of growth, rebuilding, fighting sin, recommitting to holiness, experiencing revival, even decline. I do think this builds up to a final ending. And look, like, we individually have this cycle playing out in us all the time, right? I've heard some of you said it. I've said it myself. I'm just in this season where I feel like I'm distant from God. My sin doesn't bother me like it used to. These cycles happen within us, but I think the cycle is going up and to the right. We're getting more disgusted with our sin, and more enthralled with the holiness and beauty of the risen Savior. Our story is not Nehemiah 13, even when it feels like it. Our story is Christ, not in a grave, but risen over death. Our story is Christ, not absent, but reigning on a throne even now. Our story is Christ, not forever gone, but returning for his bride, the church. It's him who we remember at the table, his body, his blood, broken and shed for sin, discouragement, and doubt. When we feast on him, we remember his good. His perfect good is counted to us. His death is counted to us in place of the death that we deserve and in his life. We have life.
Let's pray. Lord, in these moments, regardless of kind of where we are individually on this journey, whether we are discouraged and doubting or, or full of this explosion of revival in our own hearts, or we are um, in Nehemiah 13, in, in this, gosh, we can't get it together. I pray that you would, by your spirit, meet us in that moment and say, I am the only one who can give revival. I am the only one who can, by my power, raise the dead to new life. And so, Rest, rest, observe the Sabbath. No, not legalism, observe the Sabbath. Come to me, the Lord of rest. I will give you rest. In me there is rest. Start your week, your day, your life now anew with rest. The cycle of sin, doubt, failure might continue, but only for a little while. as we journey on to meet you, Jesus. And so, Lord, when we come to you, we we make Nehemiah's words our own. Remember us for our good. And we we can believe that because the good that you're remembering is the good of your son, Jesus, not our good. Remember us for your good, God. Remember us for your good. We feast on your body and your blood as an appeal, a new covenant ceremony that we make every week because we need it every week. We need to recommit every week. That God would remember us for his good. Lord, we need you. Your power is best in our weakness, so therefore we proclaim that we are weak but in you there is strength. So would you give it to us today Will we taste and see that you are good in the meal and we do so and leave here ready to be a city that blesses the nations, ready to be a church that blesses the nations in love. We pray this in your name. Amen.